Let's open up our Bibles together. Second uh, Samuel chapter six. If you're visiting, we are going through Second Samuel, so we are at chapter six today. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up over at the resource table by Jeff Williams. Pick one up. I drew attention to Jeff. Jeff and Luke. Yay. Pick up a Bible so you can follow along with us. We are at Second Samuel chapter. Six. We're going to end up reading through the whole chapter today. Uh, we're going to read it as we go, so I'm not going to read it right at the uh, front end like I do often. Um, it's a really heavy, uh, weighty passage, so let's, let's pray. Let's, let's pray before we get started. Uh, God, we come before you right now, and we just pray that we would not uh, approach you lightly today. That, God, we would give you the proper reverence and awe for you indeed are a consuming fire. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, just see you in the, the midst of this passage, that we would learn uh, about you, uh, what it means to approach you, and how uh, it is possible for us to approach you because of Jesus. Uh, we pray in the precious name of Christ. Amen. All right, are we safe or are we in danger? Is there nothing to be worried about or should we be overly concerned? Those are questions that residents in Florida have to ask every year around hurricane season. Because every year, every so many weeks, there's a hurricane that begins to build up out in the ocean. And it's the, the potential, the forecast that it might hit landfall. And it's, it's you never know. There's been many a hurricanes that never fully developed, that weakened actually as it got closer to land and really didn't cause much damage. Uh, often it's been much to do about nothing, but then other ones, as they get closer, they start building up. Uh, they start changing the trajectory, and maybe where they're going to hit this city, now they're hitting this city. Case in point, a few weeks back, Hurricane Ian. Uh, it ended up being a Category 4. It's the deadliest hurricane in Florida since 1935. Uh, there was over 100 people that died as a result of the hurricane and widespread damage. As a family, it has sometimes vacation down in the Fort Myers area. The areas that places that we've went to are completely gone. It, it, so the, the warning that this hurricane was coming and it was going to cause great damage was accurate. It came to fruition. And that's how it is with warnings. Sometimes they're much ado about nothing. Sometimes they're accurate and they will happen. Well, today's passage is a warning passage. And I can assure you it is one that indeed does come to fruition for those that don't take it seriously. It's a cautionary tale for us to not flippantly approach the Lord, to take heed to his warnings. He is not one to take lightly. So enter at your own risk with our holy God this morning. Uh, if you're taking notes, we're going to begin by looking at the return of the ark. As we said last week, these are glory times in the life of God's people. Uh, it is, it's good stuff going on right here as we begin the chapter. But as we look at the return of the ark, here's the problem. We see the recklessness with the ark. We see God's people disregarding what he's commanded. They disobey him, and as a result, they experience the consequences. And then lastly, we're going to wrap up our time by looking at the rejoicing over the ark. There's still reason to celebrate even in the midst of punishment and discipline. So let's begin 
Let's pick up at verse 1 as we receive the return of the ark. Now, as I mentioned, we are in the series going through 2 Samuel. And if you recall, we were in chapter 5 last week. And last week, we saw God begin to usher in the glory years for David. These are the good times. We saw what was possible when God's people are led by God's king, when they're obedient, when they're abiding in him. We saw really kind of a small, very small, but of a glimpse of heaven, of of what it's going to be like in the future when our king is truly ruling and reigning among us for all eternity. So let's pick up at verse 1. And that's the context that we, we begin in chapter 6. So David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So we see the ark. Ark takes center stage. Actually, 15 times in this chapter, the word ark Ark of the Lord, our Ark of God is repeated. So the Ark is obviously center stage to this chapter. Well, let's define the Ark. What are we talking about? Simply put, it's a wood box or chest plated in gold. Hebrews 9, 4 to 5 gives a little bit more detail to that. It says, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So, as I said, it's this gold-plated box. It had a cover over it. On the cover, it had the two cherubim uh, facing, and then the mercy seat. So that's it. It's something that's even common, even if you have not been to church in our pop culture. There was a movie, really famous and popular. It was part of the Indiana Jones series. What was it? It was Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you, you, a lot of people, you probably have some familiarity of what you're thinking, what you're talking about. So it had, as we saw, three things. It had a golden urn, a manna. It had Aaron's staff and the tablets of the covenant. So the, the, the Ten Commandments, so to speak. It's, it's right there. That was what was in it. But it was more than just this box. When they were in the wilderness, the ark would be in the, the tent of the meeting, and the tent of the meeting would be in the, whenever they camped, it would be in the middle of the camp. It was center stage. It was sacred. It was important. And it had very strong symbolic meaning, and beyond even symbolism. One, it represented God's presence to his people. Numbers 10, 34, and 35, it says, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So speaking of the ark, it was synonymous with what? The name of God. It was, it was one and the same. It was as if he was talking about God, not simply the ark. So it was representative of that. It was also very tied to forgiveness. Leviticus, you can look at later. Leviticus 16, 14. On the day of atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood. Guess where? At the cover of the ark. It was symbolic of of God accepting this atoning sacrifice to offer forgiveness 
for God's people. And then lastly, it was representative of revelation with God. They would go to the ark, the high priest, and even Moses before, they would go to the ark, and that's where God would communicate and reveal himself and give them wisdom and discernment with regards to how to, to function as God's leaders. So do you see the importance of the ark? Because it, it's very important that we realize that of how vital, of how crucial the ark was amongst God's people. But here's a problem. If you remember 1 Samuel, for those of you who were here when we went through 1 Samuel, prior to the summer, that's, there's more to the story. So if you recall, what happened with the ark and with God's people is they viewed the ark like a rabbit's foot. They're lucky rabbit's foot, Okay. So what they did is they were in a battle against the Philistines. They lost. And you know what they did? They looked around and said, we forgot our lucky rabbit's foot. Go get the ark. The reason we lost is we don't have the ark. If we bring the ark, we'll beat them. Because it's, it's like magical from their ideas. So he, they go get the ark. But you see, there was a heart issue going on. This was a people who were not trusting in God. So what they end up doing is they bring the ark, and guess what does not happen? They don't win. They lose. Not only do they lose, Eli dies. It's a, it's a mess. And the Philistines, their, their nemesis, their enemy, takes the ark from them. They take the ark. They take it back to their land, and they put the ark in the temple of Dagon, one of their gods, it was as if they had celebrated the defeat of God and, and God's people. Well, the next morning, Dagon, if you recall, this, this statue, this idol, was bowing down at the ark. So they probably think, you know what, it was a windy night that night. It must have fell. Maybe kids snuck in here and played around and pushed it over. We need to put it back up. So they put it back up. The next morning they wake up. This time it's down, head cut off hands cut off. And that was just a preview of what was going to happen. And then in a period of time, God begins to afflict the Philistines. One time after another, they start developing these tumors. It's getting bad. So the Philistines, what they do is like, you know what? We're going to send this to a different Philistine city. So they would send it to the next one. Same thing would happen. Send it to the next one. Until finally they got to the point, we got to get this thing out of here. It's going to kill all of us. So they send it back on a new cart to Israel. Well, it comes to Israel. You think it's going to be a good celebration? Well, some of the people, they look into it like they're not supposed to do. God kills, takes like 70 of them. They, they die. At that point, they're like, we are not bringing this thing back into town. So they find a guy, his name's Abinadab, as we're going to see in a little bit, and they put it with him for 20 years. 20 years they do that. You know how many people died the first time when they uh, thought it was a rabbit's foot and was lucky? 30,000 soldiers. How many soldiers does David start with in chapter 6? There's very important readings. 30,000 soldiers. And we need to see what's going on when David is going to get the ark. You see, David realized it was not a good luck piece. What David was doing, he was asking God to take center stage. It was as if he was having a party with God is the, is the, the, the point of the party. He was inviting God to the party. 
It was as if he was giving God the driver's seat and, the, and the, the keys to the car. I want you to drive the kingdom. I want you to lead. So these are all really good things that we see going on in this chapter. You see the contrast between the king that was before. First Chronicles 13, 3 to 4, it says, During the time of Saul, we did not seek the ark. And when it says they did not seek the ark, who did they not really seek? They did not seek the Lord. So friends, this is something to celebrate and something for us to even be thinking about in our own lives. Are we inviting God to take center stage in our lives? Parents, are you inviting God to rule and reign in your parenting with your children? Marriages, are you inviting God to be center of your marriage? Are you inviting God to work with you? Are you inviting God to school with you? And that's what David is doing. David has got his heart right with the Lord. He's a man after God's own heart. He is pointed in the right direction. So this is a good thing that we see about to take place and happening. But in the midst of the return of the ark, we see the recklessness with the ark. They don't do it right. Let's look at the wrong way of doing the right thing. The wrong way of doing the right thing. Read verse 3 with me. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving them, the new cart, with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Well, let's consider first of all the, the severe surprising punishment. So you can envision what's going on. So the ark, it's sitting on this cart. The cart is being pulled uh, by animals, and sure enough, one of the oxen maybe steps in a rut, and all of a sudden it stumbles, and that jerking action on the trailer, all of a sudden the trailer moves. And the cart moves, and on the cart, what would move if the cart moved? the ark. And maybe it appeared like the ark was going to fall over. I mean, the sacred object is going to fall over onto the ground. So Uzzah sees this. I can't let the ark of God fall to the ground. So he just puts his hand out to stop it. And then all of a sudden, that party stops instantly. God strikes him dead right there. He gets angry and takes his life. And I think as we read that, that escalated pretty fast, right? I mean, I find it remarkable sometimes road rage cases. Somebody cuts you off and all of a sudden the next thing you know, you get out and you shoot the person. There was a a parent like killing a coach at a peewee game because he didn't like the call that was made. Like, can you imagine that kind of like, it went from zero to crazy and like, like that, like he just touched the ark, God, and you're killing him. And, and what's David's response? 
He's frustrated. He's angry that God did that. But this is not the first time that we see God acting like this. Second Samuel, in the previous chapter, it's important because we see the same language as we're going to see right here. Uh, chapter 5, verse 20, when God uh, defeated the Philistines, he says, The Lord has broke out. He has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. God broke out on the Philistines. That makes sense, though, because it's God's enemies. But what about God's people? Why would God strike down his own people? Numbers 21. They're in the wilderness and they're complaining, God, why'd you take us out of Egypt? It was the best. And now we're stuck here eating this food and drinking water from rocks. This is miserable. And God's like, you want Egypt? I'll give you Egypt. And all of a sudden, a bunch of fiery serpents come out and kill a bunch of people. Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, sons of the priests, they offered a foreign fire, an unauthorized fire, a fire that God did not command them to offer. And guess what God did? Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And then Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to lie to God on how much they sold land for. And what did God do? He struck them down. I think we need to start coming to a realization that our God is a God that we should not take lightly. Hebrews says that we're to worship God with reverence and awe, for he is a consuming fire. Last night, we were at the bonfire and the, the pig roast at the rices, and it was so hot. If anybody actually went by the fire, like we were, even some of the boys were having a, a heat intensity contest. Like who can stay closest to the heat long enough? And then I started to walk over, and as I'm up there, I'm like, what if I got so close my eyebrows burn off and then I'm like this would be really awkward Sunday morning so I stepped back but it was hot like God there's a there's a fear that we should see in God because of the surprising punishment here but we need to realize that the, the the punishment though it seems surprising to you and I it's fitting because there are a series of problems God's punishment is not harsh and he's not unjust in doing what he did. Uh, there's a, a kid's magazine that they have at school often. It's Highlights, I think. And, and one of the things Highlights will often have, it will have a, a picture, what's wrong with this picture? And you'll look and you're like, oh, there's a triangle for the wheel of the bike. And you'll look at the clock and there's no hands. And there's this, all these things and you're kind of circling like, what's wrong? Well, when we see what we just read, that they bring the ark up, What's wrong with the picture? Is there anything wrong? Is, is God arbitrary in his punishment of the Israelites? The answer is no, he's not arbitrary. Because there is so much wrong. First of all, number 7-9. Number 7-9. It says, to the sons of Koath, he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. So first of all, Abinadab and his family, they are not, there's nowhere in the Bible that shows that they are of the line of Koath. So you have the wrong person moving the ark. The way that they're moving it is wrong. How did the Philistines, you remember when I was reading, how did the Philistines move the ark? On a new cart. How were God's people supposed to move the ark? They were to carry it on their shoulders because there would have been poles coming out of it. 
So they're doing that. Here's another problem with it. The ark, anytime it was in transport, it was supposed to be covered. So in theory, if it would have been covered and it would have stumbled, he would have never touched the holy things. Because Numbers uh, 4.15 says, do not touch the holy things. They're not allowed. Even those people, even though they're given permission to be the ones that move it, they're supposed to never touch the ark. So wrong person, carrying it the wrong way, it's not covered. And then on top of it all, I think the big problem is there was an apathy towards the holiness of God. Because in that moment, we got a glimpse of Uzzah. And what Uzzah thought was me, as a sinner, touching the holy things that I should not touch, was cleaner than the holy things falling on the dirt and ground. And the truth is, the ground is way more pure than you and I as sinners before a holy God. And that's where the problem lies. And that's why what God does, he's a God who can't turn his blind eye to sin. What they did was wrong. It was defiant. It was disobedient. It was sinful. It was communicating so much, not just to God, but to the Israelites. And God could not turn a blind eye to it. Well, do you take God's commands seriously? Do you view them selectively? It's like we as Christians, we kind of abuse grace. We kind of pick and choose the commands that we think are important and serious in life. And we, we look at other ones like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And we kind of justify and we rationalize our transgressions. Friends, this is serious stuff we're talking about. As followers of the Lord, we need to take God and his holiness seriously. So that was the wrong way to do the right thing. Well, what's the right way to do the right thing? Go on to verse 8 with me. So David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So there's a, a perplexing riddle in what David said. He's angry and he's frustrated and you can kind of identify with David, right? I'm doing the right thing, God. I'm asking you to be center stage. We made a minor mistake from his point of view and you go and strike people dead. And the end of the day, David knows it's his fault because he's the king. It was his idea in the first place. And he asked that question. Did you, did you hear the question? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Same question was asked when it came back the first time from the Philistines. In chapter 6, verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and whom shall he go up away from us? It's the divine dilemma. It's bigger than the ark problem. Do you realize that? 
Because what David is asking is what you and I should be asking all along. How can we be right before a holy God? Isaiah 6, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this, this moment where God displayed his glory, where God displayed his holiness and he strikes down a, a person because of their disobedience was an eye-opener to David to ask that question, how can I possibly come close to God? He had an awareness of how impossible that is. Remember Jesus, he's talking about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He says it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. And in Matthew 19, 25, the disciples ask, who then can be saved? How can anybody be saved if, if that is the truth? You see, in fear, he leaves the ark then with the, 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 young, the man that he left it with is a Philistine in the land. Isn't that funny? Isn't that a little bit comical? He's like, all right, we've seen what happens with the ark and us. We'll leave it with this guy as kind of a case study and see what happened. And and sure enough, uh, it ends up doing what? Verse 15, it says, or at verse 12, he he blesses him. And there's this, this blessing that goes on. Continue on with me. Verse 12. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the song of the sound of the horn. So let's ask that question and let's see what his answer is. What was the question? How can we be before a holy God? How can the ark come to us? How can we be in the presence of God? What's your answer today? Because that's a question we all have to ask. Because one day we're going to die. One day we're going to stand before God. And what's going to be the difference between you being ushered into eternal glory or you being told, I don't know you, depart from me, evildoer? What's the answer? And the answer is, if there is what? If there's atonement. If there is forgiveness. Look at the proper repentance of David in this passage. A totally different approach the second time around. They obey God. Did you notice what happened? That it was, verse 13, those who bore the ark of the Lord. Where's the new cart? They got rid of the new cart. They're going to do it right this time. It's likely, he doesn't say it directly, but likely it wasn't Abinadab's other son and them carrying it. It was actually a Kohathite who was supposed to carry it in the first place. There's no touching. They, they do it right. And what we see in this is God is the God of second chances. Have you ever been given a second chance? Have you ever given somebody a second chance? I mean, it's, it's, isn't it a special thing in life where you make a mistake and somebody is willing to forgive and to move on? I've seen it in relationships. I've seen it in places of employment. I've seen it across life. It's, it's special because, man, it's like I'm finally getting an opportunity to do this again. And this time, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to learn from my mistakes. And that's, 
indeed what David does. And notice, now it's hard to tell, and we don't know for sure, is did they, every time they did these steps, did they do the so many steps, then sacrifice an animal, and then so many steps and sacrifice? It's possible in the language either way. It doesn't give great clarity whether it was a one-time sacrifice or it was multiple times. Part of me kind of leans towards the multiple times because David was so concerned that he was doing it right this time. But why were they sacrificing an animal? So there wasn't more oozes. Do you get it? That the blood that would be shed by the animal would appease God, would atone for their sins so that another Uzzah did not have to happen. They needed forgiveness. Isaiah 6, 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. You see, God cares about the means and he cares about the end. And he will not look lightly at our sin, but in the midst of all of that, there's hope. There's forgiveness. There's the opportunity for Jesus. Even in David, we see a glimpse of Jesus. Why? Because he's wearing an ephod. That would be something that the priests would wear. And what is, when we think of, we think of Jesus, we give him three main roles, prophet, priest, king. And we see a kind of a priest king here with David. So even in the midst of the Old Testament, who are we ultimately seeing? We're seeing Jesus. We're seeing, we're being reminded of Jesus. We're being reminded that we needed someone to sacrifice. We needed blood. We needed forgiveness so that we could approach a holy God. And we see that in our passage. So we look at the return of the ark. We see the recklessness, the wrong way and the right way. Let's wrap up our time by looking at the rejoicing over the ark. A huge celebration breaks out. Read verse 16 with me. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servant, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself Notice, first of all, Michael's jealousy and what we see is a heart that is far from the Lord. Now, if you remember our study in 1 Samuel, there's a big change going on in the relationship dynamics between David and Michael. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 20, it said, Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And it appears David loved Michael. He loved her so much that he had to uh, pay a price to Saul to marry her. He had to get 200 foreskins of Philistines. So he went and killed 
200 Philistines on behalf of, of, of being able to marry her. So David's on the run. David and Saul's relationship is now fragmented. And you know what, da- what Saul does? He says, Michael, David's out of the picture. You're marrying somebody else. So he gives his daughter to another guy. And it appears that that relationship ends up being a loving relationship. Because if you recall a little bit back, David decides, I want Michael back. It was a power play. It was a move. Go get me Michael. So they get Michael. They take her from her now current husband. He cries the whole way until he's told to go back. And so, so there's, there's some drama going on. She loved him. Now she doesn't. What's part of the problem, though? Is Michael his only wife now? Now, he got, he's got wives all over the place. He's got wives. He got, he's got concubines. She's back there simply as a power move that, hey, I've got Saul's daughter as mine. It's a big deal. So she, notice what it says. She despises him in her heart. She hates him. She has no children, uh, which would have been a definite stigma in the ancient Near East. Her dad and brother are gone, so she just straight up, let's be honest, she can't stand David. So there's David. He's dancing, and he's partying. And who comes along but the one who rains on people's parade? Have you ever heard that, rain on a parade? Because usually if it's a parade and it's raining, that's not good on the parade. It's not enjoyable to be standing out in the rain during a parade. It's not enjoyable to have the rain come down. So she's, she's the fun stopper. She comes up and she's like, oh, look at you, Mr. Cool. You looked ridiculous. You looked inappropriate. Because think about it, like how we view royalty in today's world recently with the, the queen dying. I mean, we would find it inappropriate if one of the, the royalty we're doing some funny dance on online, right? Or making funny faces, we would say, you can't do that. You're the king or you're the queen or you're the, the prince. And, and that's what he does. He, she says, you're undignified. I think it's built up frustration and angst. It's unforgiveness. It's hatred. It's a judging, critical spirit. And friends, Michael's not the only one that battles with that. I mean, let's be honest. How often do you look at other people and you judge? You judge, you, you despise them in your heart. You're annoyed by them. You're frustrated with them. We do this. I hear it as a pastor. I do it as a pastor. At times, I'll, I'll be frustrated with an individual and, and I'll have resentment and build up towards them. Friends, there's, there's no place for that. In our heart. But not only do we see Michael's jealousy, we see David's joy. Go on to verse 21 with me. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but my female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. You see the joy. He, 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 like, he, he's just dancing with all his might. It probably looked a little shocking 
My wife experienced a little bit of this last night. I, I was in bed, going to bed, and I forgot that the, the Guardians, formerly known as Cleveland Indians game, was still on. And I flipped it on. We're losing at the bottom of the inning. And long story, I really don't like the New York Yankees. That's a whole nother sermon. And they somehow, some way, bases loaded, two outs, two strikes, a rookie's up. He hits it, two runs score, they win the game, and I, my wife looked at me like I was an insane man. I began punching the air, and then I kick off the covers, I stand up, I'm dancing, and she's like, is it over? I'm like, just this game, but we have to play tomorrow. But it was like this kind of joy for a stupid sports game that, to be honest, they might lose today and then lose the next game, and then they're out of the playoffs. I mean, that's a real possibility. I'm a Cleveland fan. I'm a realist. That's what normally happens. But in that moment, there was this joy, this celebration. And we see David, he doesn't care what people think. Notice his answer. He's like, I'm doing it before the Lord. He's like, you thought that was undignified? I'll take it up a notch, Michael, because I don't care. I'm celebrating what God has done. Over a 10-year period, he's finally put me on the throne. I'm here not because I auditioned for it. It's not because I wanted to be it. God handpicked me for this, and I'm going to be his instrument. That's why he brought the ark in the first place, because he wanted to honor the Lord. His focal point was not man's approval. It was God's approval. Galatians 1.10, he says, I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. If I'm trying to please man, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a what? A servant of Christ. Friends, that's the danger. Who are you living to please? Are you living to please man? Are you living to please God? As a preacher, there is a temptation always. If I, if I preach to please man, definite possibility I can put a few more people in the chairs here. I can definitely probably have my ego stroked. People will pat me on the back more. But at the end of the day, I'm going to stand before a holy God and he's going to hold me accountable for what I preached. And it's not just the preacher, it's all of us. Are you living to please God or are you living to please the Lord? Are you excited about God? Do you have joy in the Lord? Friends, we get giddy about sports. We get giddy about friendships, relationships, all those things. I mean, when's the last time, even when you're singing, I think we get sometimes so comfortable in worship, so routine in what we do on a Sunday morning, that I think we sing without thinking about what we're singing. We just kind of go through the motions. We're afraid to raise a hand. We're afraid to engage in too much emotions. People might be looking at us. Maybe you're a bad singer, which is fine. And you're like, people can hear me, so I don't want people to hear how bad of a singer. Who cares? I mean, really, when we engage in worship, it should be a concert between you and the Lord. So we should have like 150 to 200 concerts going on right here. Tune you in the Lord. Don't care who's left of you. Don't care who's right. Don't care who's behind. We get to celebrate God. And I think we've missed a little bit of that as we approach God. I think we're missing the point of even how we approach God. So I've lived in my, my current house almost two years this November. 
in the two years, I have fallen down my steps two and a half times. When I say half time, the half one, the only reason it was a half because I almost separated my shoulder with the torque of holding on to the railing when I fell. And I was able to somehow do like a parallel dip gymnastic move. Like my shoulders hurt for weeks. But then the other two, so that was half. The other two times when I say I fell down the steps, you know what I'm talking about. There's no, did he fall? No, I fell. My neighbors probably heard me fall. I like legit fell. Feet went out from under me at, at the bottom. So our, the way our steps go, you go eight steps down. There's a pathway. I count them now. And, and then there's four steps and then the ground. And I'm good usually on the eight steps, even though the half was on the eight steps. I got down to the four, did the, the platform, went down. And I've, the, two, the two falls have been the bottom. But when I fall, I fall, go big or go home. I fall big. Feet go out. I landed on my back. The second time I did it, like, to be honest, and I know it sounds really dramatic, I wasn't sure if I was walking ever again. It was so much pain. I was like, at first, like, can I feel my feet? It was a big deal. Well, since that last fall, praise the Lord, I have not fallen again. But you know why I have not fallen again? Because I approach walking down the steps in a whole new way at my house. If you watch video, it's embarrassing. I walk down the steps so slow, slow gingerly. I walk. So most of the time, to be honest, even today, because I put my dress shoes on upstairs, I put my dress shoes on, so I went sideways. I am holding the handles. I go down each step. I get to the platform. I take a breath. I got the four, and then I, I, I slowly walk down the steps. I see the danger. I see the risk. I've learned from my mistakes, and Lord willing, it's not going to happen again. Friends, I, I think we need to, to take heed to that when it comes to our approach with God. I think there is such a flippant nature on how we approach God. We just kind of wing it. We, 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 we bark off orders to him. We give him demands. We, there's, there's no fear of God before us when we consider him. We need to be more mindful of who he is and who we are. That doesn't mean we don't. It doesn't mean I stay up in my second floor the rest of my life. But how I approach going to that next level. And same is true with us. It doesn't mean we don't approach God, but friends, we need to take heed. And I think in the midst of all of it, it's not just being slower and more thought out and more humble and more reverent in the approach of God. I think the big picture in all of this is that you and I having a Christ focus. And what I mean by that is acknowledging and understanding the only reason that you and I can approach God is one word. It's Jesus. It's Jesus that he has atoned for my sins, that he's paid the debt, that he's bridged the gap, and he is the reason that I can celebrate. He's the reason why we should have the joy that we see David being undignified, dancing around, and shouting before God. We have this same. If anything, I would argue you and I have more of a reason to celebrate than David. Because we're on this side of the cross. He was looking ahead towards the Savior. We're looking back at our Savior. So we need to have that kind of joy and we need to be fanning into flame. And friends, if you lack that joy, it might be a you thing. 
It might be a you problem, that Jesus is not central to your life, that you have left the ark back at somebody else's house, and it's gathering dust, and you're storing stuff on it, and Jesus needs to be center stage of your life. But the good news is, as we make much of Christ, he welcomes us with open arms, and he embraces us as his own. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, uh, God, that though that is a divine dilemma, how can we approach you? How can the ark come to us? Is it even possible as sinners? You've answered that question through the death of your son. So we thank you for Christ. We pray that you would help us to be men and women, children and women and children that make much of Jesus. May even now as we sing this last song, may you uh, fan into flame a joy, a delight in the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond through worship.